This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for June 26, 2020. Kirk and Josh discuss the latest from WWDC, including Apple Silicon, the new Mac OS Big Sur, new features in iOS and iPad OS, and of course, a rundown of security and privacy features in these new operating systems. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Hey, Josh, what's new? Did you see anything interesting this week? Well, let's see. I did see the Apple keynote on Monday. That's exactly what I was getting to. How did you guess? (laughs) It, it's one of those weeks, and, and uh, I warn my Twitter followers every time this happens, you know, warning, for the rest of the day, I'm going to be tweeting about Apple. Um, it's one of those weeks when everything new is presented. Not everything, right? Because the hardware comes in the fall. But this week, we got new, all the new operating systems and a lot of news about the Mac hardware-wise. So where do we start? Well, let's see. I guess, first of all, since we did bring this up a couple of weeks ago, they have confirmed that they're switching to ARM processors, although they didn't even mention ARM at all in the keynote. Yeah, I think it's a good thing that they didn't. They, they're calling it Apple Silicon. ARM is like, if they're going to say Apple's ARM-based processors, then they need to explain what ARM-based means. Uh, I think we know that Apple makes processors and has been making them for several years. It's it's a big selling point of the iPhone and the iPad. So to me, it makes sense that they just say Apple Silicon. Although Silicon sounds weird. It sounds too much like a technical term. Yeah, but they did at least talk about how they're using the same types of processors that they have in iPhones and iPads. Right. And in fact, developers have access to be able to, uh, I guess, buy a Mac mini that has an Apple A12 Z processor in it. And that was kind of interesting because that's basically the same thing that is running in the, I think is the iPad pro. Um, So they're, they're putting an iPad processor in a Mac and making that available to developers so they can already start experimenting with it. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting things in what you just said. First of all, it's $500 and you don't buy it. You have to give it back after the, the testing period is over. But people I know who did this 15 years ago when they went from PowerPC to Intel, I think they paid $999 for, I think it was like a G3 tower cheese grater type. And they returned it to Apple and they got a store credit. So basically Apple's giving them away, but you're paying them in case you never give it back. Um, What I take away from the processor is that, damn, that processor in the iPad is fast. It's If it's good enough for the Mac. It's impressive. Yeah. I, that's um, one of the things I think that stood out the most to me was looking at all of the things that they showed off on the Mac and how fast things were, including, uh, I guess we can transition to this. So, uh, of course, there's going to be this overlap period where we have Macs running Intel processors and we also have Macs running Apple Silicon processors. So, that's interesting because they announced that there was going to be a two-year overlap. That's a lot more and than that's I... that's not long. Well... Oh, no. It, it's no, more than I would have two, expected. 
No, it's two years for them to renew the product line. That in two years, everything will be available with Apple processors. Now, if you think across the product line, the MacBook Air, the MacBook Pro, um, the iMac, the iMac Pro, the Mac Pro, all of those, uh, Mac Mini as well, all of those upgraded to Apple processors in just two years. That seems pretty quick to me. Well, if I remember correctly, I think that uh, when Apple announced the Intel transition, they announced it in 2005. The first Macs with Intel processors started shipping in 2006. And if I remember right, I think by the end of that year, they already had all of their product lines, uh, all of their Macs, that is, switched over to Intel processors. So they did it relatively quickly. They didn't have as many different products, though, did they? They had the iBook and the PowerBook. Mm. Um, they had the iMac. And was there even a sort of, was it G3 Tower or whatever it was? that The, the, the ancestor of G, G3 Tower. The G5, that was it. yeah. So they, the G5. They only had basically four computers. So it was a simpler product. The Mac Mini, I don't think, existed back then. Well, they also had servers back then, too. They did have the True. XServe. The XServe, yeah. And, uh, but I the XServe came out with the Intel processor before all the other Macs. Yeah, I, gosh, it's been a long time. I'd have to go back and look yeah. at that. But but yeah, well, I, it's it's not that important. But over two years, we're going to see a whole series of new Macs, and of course, this makes people question: Should I buy a new Mac now if there's going to be a new one soon? They said that there's going to be new Macs coming out by the end of the year. When we talked about this a few weeks ago, we thought, okay, they'll do this first in like a MacBook Pro or a MacBook Air, because one of the advantages of these chips is they use less power. But maybe it's going to be more aggressive. Maybe we're going to see, say, a MacBook Air and an iMac coming out with the new processors at the end of the year. Well, that's actually one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is they didn't say what product lines, you know, or is there just going to be one? Is there going to be like a, an entry level MacBook or is it going to be just a Mac mini? Because we already know that they're making Mac minis available for developers. So what product or products specifically will have this new processor by the end of the year? Um, I, I, my guess is that they're probably going to start out with consumer level products. I think we mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, that that seems yeah. to make the most sense because they're less likely to be doing things like trying to run windows on their Mac. That was another interesting point. They showed off virtualization and the, you know, the ability to run an operating system within an operating system. And they specifically mentioned Linux a couple of times, but they didn't right. say anything at all about Windows, which kind of right. makes me wonder what that means for the future of Windows on the Mac. They, they did talk about uh, some third-party programs that can run an operating system like that. Uh, they, they talked, I think they showed parallels desktop if I remember right, but they didn't say anything about whether you're going to be able to run the Intel version of windows. There's also windows 10 for arm. Uh, and so I'm curious about whether that can run easily on a Mac or, you know, w- what is the future of windows on a Mac? Are we going to have boot camp still? I, I would guess probably no, they're getting uh, rid of that. There's not, there's not going to be any boot camp. Yeah. Um, but, um, Windows 10 for ARM should be able to run the same now as Parallels and Fusion run Windows within a wrapper, but sort of directly, not an emulation. Um, but anyway, that, that's, that's kind of speculation that we don't know anything about. Okay, so what we do know is that Mac OS 10 is dead. And thank God they didn't say, oh, yes, we're going up to 11. 
<laughs> yeah, they they could have easily made a Spinal Tap reference out of that. Yeah. But yeah. uh yeah, th- this was something that I think a lot of people had seen coming, uh, you know, down the road. We didn't necessarily know this was going to happen at this event. In fact, um it seems in a lot of ways that it looks like Apple originally intended for this release to be called Mac OS 10.16. And then they sort of change things at the last minute. I think even the developer build that, you know, they're making available uh, still refers to itself as 1016 in a lot of ways. Yeah. In fact, when I went to download the Big Sur beta, because I have a developer account, I was confused. It's like, I don't want the Mac OS. I don't want the Catalina beta. I want the, the Big Sur beta. So it is labeled as such, even when you install a profile and download it from um, software update preference. I'm really psyched. I, I think the changes in iOS we'll get to in a minute are interesting, but not essential. But I'm really psyched about the changes in, in Mac OS 11. It's going to be hard to remember to say that Mac OS 11, because we've been saying Mac OS 10 for 20 years, just about. Yeah. Um, with different versions. So Mac OS 11, they're taking the aesthetics of the iPad and bringing it to the Mac with windows that look kind of like iPad windows, even though the iPad doesn't have windows. And at the same time in iOS 14, they're bringing sidebars to a lot of iPad apps that are the same kind of sidebars that are in Mac OS 11. So there's going to be a familiarity between the two operating systems that we've never really had before. I'm not sure how much I like this. <laughs> I, it's sort of weird seeing... There's lots of naysayers, yes. <laughs> it's sort of weird seeing iPad-like interfaces on the Mac, but you know, I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. Apple's been moving toward a unification of Mac OS and, and iOS or iPad OS for a number of years now. And so this continues that trend. And I think, you know, part of the goal here is to make sure that there's a seamless experience when you move from one Apple device to another. Apple doesn't want you to have to completely rethink how you use your device when you're no longer using a Mac and you switch to an iPad or maybe vice versa. So, you know, there's there's something to be said for trying to keep that user experience consistent. Um, and some of the things that they added, I, I really like, for example, the introduction of the control center. Uh, you know, control center is something that's very useful on the iPhone and iPad. And it's great to see that coming to the Mac. Exactly. And I was just going to say that because you've got grouped together all these settings that on the Mac, they're either in the menu bar or you have to go into system preferences for a lot of them. Now, of course, in iOS, Control Center is also a wrapper for system preferences in certain ways. You can access the same settings there. But the ability to go to Wi-Fi and volume and brightness and a bunch of other settings, do not disturb, uh, Bluetooth, etc., cetera, um, with a single click and have that whole interface display, I think that's a real streamlining of the interface. And it means I'll have fewer gadgets up in the menu bar um, when this is over. I won't need to see as many things up there. Right, that's true. They they added, for example, uh, the volume control, the brightness control, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, uh, being able to turn AirDrop on and off. Uh, yeah, all, that's a big one, actually, because yeah. AirDrop is hard to get to on the Mac. And as, as we've discussed, it's a good idea to either keep it off or set to, uh, you know, just your contacts or nobody until you need it. So you turn it on when you need it and then turn it off again. Let's talk about iOS and 
so the the iPad itself doesn't get a lot of changes. You know, these sidebars that I mentioned before are coming to a lot of apps, and that's making the iPad apps a bit more Mac-like in terms of navigation. Um, but the big change that I'm really glad to see is the iPhone home screen, and this is something that Android has been doing for years. This is something that Windows Phone had was it 10 years ago that I had a Windows phone for a while with these tiles that could have live contextual information? We'll, we'll link to an article on the Intego Mac security blog where I've written about this. And I include an Apple screenshot that shows the activity app and it shows photos and it shows music. So you can see your activity live. You can see well, the Photos app, it looks like it's displaying a memory, and you can see what music's playing instead of just having the music app icon, which you have to tap and open. Um, you'll be able to put things like weather and clocks and stock tickers and anything you need. And I kind of like that because currently the iPhone is just a grid of apps. And if you want information, you can swipe to the right and you can get the Today View where you can have widgets. But I, I, I never really think of doing that automatically. In fact, sometimes I'm checking the temperature. I've got a weather station and I go to the folder and open the app to look at it. Whereas I could swipe right because there's a widget. It just doesn't cross my mind. So I can envisage having my home screen to be a combination of the apps I use most as simple icons and apps where I regularly check for information um, as these little widgets. Yeah, this is one of those things that I'm not sure I'm going to adopt. <laughs> but uh, you We're know, doing a lot of disagreeing here. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. We'll, we'll see it. We'll see in a few months. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. I mean, I, I suppose if I didn't, well, I, I guess if I didn't have an Apple Watch, I probably really wouldn't be looking at the activity all that often. But right. uh, but because I do have well, a think watch, of, you know, think I, of putting weather, think of maybe there's going to be a mail widget to show recent emails, um, the, a home widget if you use smart home devices, a music player widget. Think of all of those things or a news widget to show the news if you're a news junkie, um, a Twitter widget, since I know you use Twitter. So it, it's each user can decide what they want to put on it. They're not going to force you to only use certain widgets and, and presumably third-party apps are going to adopt this pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, th and there could be some really interesting and useful things that I can imagine being on a home screen. Um, so we'll have to wait and see what the third-party developers do. I'm not terribly interested in the Apple built-in stuff that they've talked about so far when it comes to those widgets. But they can, by the way, take a number of different shapes and sizes. So, for example, you could have a square widget on the home screen that takes the place of four icons or you could have something that's a little bigger that takes, uh, you know, four icons wide and two tall, for example. So there's an, a lot of different things you can there, do. I with think that, there are then. three sizes for all the widgets. I think that's what they showed. Um, quick, quickly about the iPad. One feature that I think is really cool is the ability to use the Apple Pencil to write in notes and text fields. Now, um, as we were recording a few minutes ago. Um, the Amazon guy rang the doorbell and he dropped me off one of those Logitech crayon pencils because the Logitech crayon works with my Mac mini um, where I've installed the iOS 14 beta. I have the Apple pencil for my iPad pro and I didn't want to install the beta. I have terrible handwriting. So I'll be really impressed if this can figure out my handwriting when I write on it. Did you ever use the Newton back in the day? I was just going to say, this reminds me so much of the Apple Newton, right? Uh, yep. I didn't personally own a Newton, but uh, it was a 
uh, frequently mocked uh, um, product. You know, the, the Newton came out before the Palm Pilot, and that was it, it was a little ahead of its time. I think was part of the the, the problem there. Like it seems like with more recent Apple innovations like the iPhone, people were very eager to adopt that quickly. With the Newton, right. a lot of people just were kind of naysayers and and there were a lot of negative reviews and people didn't really want to give Apple a chance back then. I think it's part of the problem. Yeah, I think that has to do with it. Um, be- now, I remember this was in 1996. I didn't own one, but I did some work translating uh, an app. And so the developer lent me one for a couple of months and it was a fascinating device. It really was. Um, it was slow. It made mistakes. It was early technology, but you know, look where we've come now. Uh, there's, there's an app called good notes that can do this really well on, on the iPad. And, uh, you know, Apple's had this in Jaguar in 2002, something called inkwell or ink. Um, if you ever install, uh, well, up to the, up to the current uh, version of Mac OS in Fusion or Parallels, you'll see that for some reason, the ink preference pane comes up in system preferences. Normally, it only comes up if you have a, what is it, a drawing tablet connected to your device. And I remember that they made a big deal about this 2002, 18 years ago. And it was one of these Apple features that came out that you just didn't hear much about afterwards. Right. I I did, however, use a variation of the Palm Pilot. I had uh, a couple of different Palm OS devices back in the day. Yep, me and, too. And, uh, and and the handwriting recognition, I thought, actually was pretty useful on those devices. Um, as long as you sort of knew the particular way that you were supposed to write right. letters. And, of course, the nice thing about uh, the Newton and, of course, now with that being uh, a built-in feature – uh, again, it, it's going to be hopefully a much better experience where you'll be able to write normal letters. You don't have to do some weird, you know, approximation of letters like you had to do on yeah. Palm. Um, well, think about it. The processor of any iPad today is probably a million times faster than that of the Newton. Um, the screen resolution is probably a thousand times better. Maybe not actually a thousand, but, you know, orders of magnitude. Um, and just the quality of all of these different components that make up this this chain between the stylus and the screen and the processor, the the improvement since then, uh, you know, this is more. This is twenty five years since the Newton. Also, I mean, the improvements in artificial intelligence and being able to like predict what you're yeah. you're trying to write, and it, that also can contribute a lot to interpreting handwriting. And so, I think there's been obviously major innovations in that area, and so that also could contribute to much more accurate handwriting recognition than we ever had back in those days. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more specifically about the security and privacy features in these new operating systems. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software 
that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST20 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST20 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, so in the first part, we talked about the new operating systems. We talked about uh, the new Mac and the new processors. Um, now let's take a look at the new security and privacy features. There was a pretty long segment about an hour into the presentation that was just about privacy. Um, Craig Federighi came out and he talked about the four key principles of privacy that Apple uh, uses to guide them. Data minimization, which is where um, the company minimizes the personal data that Apple or app developers can access. On-device intelligence, where as much of your data is processed on the devices rather than being sent to the cloud. Security, which for them is is the security of your data, protecting your user data. And transparency and control, which is letting users know how their data is being used and letting them choose how it can be used. Now, there's a very important, very big deal uh, feature in macOS, iOS, it is this new tracker blocking system in Safari, and it's got a little button up in the toolbar for a privacy report. And when you load a web page, uh, it will show you which trackers have been blocked. Now, it's blocking, if I understand correctly, cross-site trackers, the kind of trackers that are set to build a profile for an advertiser from website to website. Websites can have their own trackers, which aren't technically the same thing, and they won't be blocked. But I saw something on Twitter this morning saying that Apple is crippling an $80 billion industry. Because if none of these trackers work anymore, then all these advertisers and all these companies that depend on user profiles, they just won't have data. Right. One of the things that they show in Apple screenshot uh, demonstrating this tracker blocker, and by the way, this is sort of um, just an, an an improvement upon their existing intelligent tracking prevention technology. Right. Where where they put a little uh, additional icon in the Safari browser that you can tap or click on, and now it'll show you a list of all the trackers on that website that are currently being blocked. And so one of the things that shows up in that screenshot is Google Analytics. And, you know, just about every site on the internet uses Google Analytics to have some basic information about um, the type of people using their site. Not, it doesn't identify people uniquely and tell that to the website owner, but they do give demographic information such as what type of device they're using and those sort of things. Um, And so if Google Analytics is one of these things that's getting shut down, of course, uh, in Apple's perspective, this is a great thing for privacy because you don't necessarily want websites and companies like Google to be able to know that much about you in every site that you're visiting. Um, but, uh, obviously that can be a little bit of a challenge for website owners who are, are trying to find out this kind of demographic and, tra- and, and sort of general trends about people using their sites who don't collect information that uniquely identifies anybody. 
Well, just as an example, there there are certain types of information that they're not going to have, like which site you came from, which sites you visit often that, that are built into a user profile that they use to tailor ads. Uh, let's say you were just on a website looking at shoes and you go to a news site, you start seeing ads for shoes. That's the way the system follows you around and that won't be available anymore. It is interesting that Apple specifically calls out Google in these screenshots um, rather than just putting something like, you know, tracker.example.com. Well, in a lot of recent keynotes over the past several years, there's always been this implication that whenever they're talking about privacy, they're really, you know, talking about Google and Facebook and how those companies don't respect your privacy, but we do. And so I'm, I'm not terribly surprised to see Google domains being, you know, showing up in this list. Uh, but, you know, that's that's it's, it's just, a warning. It is. Yeah, it, it is in a way. Yeah, it's sort of like this it, part of this ongoing conflict between Apple and Google and Apple really, really wants more mobile market share uh, with Android being the number one mobile operating system. Uh you know, I think Apple's still a little bit salty about uh, <laughs> Android even existing in the first place. And so I, this is sort of one of those ways that they can continually make jabs at, at Google by saying, we're the privacy kings and they just hate you and they want to steal all your information. Okay, the Mac App Store is getting some interesting information. And the person who presented this in the keynote um, said that it's kind of like nutrition labels. That When you buy food, you've got a nutrition label telling you calories and protein and fat. And it's, it's an interesting sort of metaphor for what they're doing. Yeah, you know, what's funny about this is that when they said that, they they actually introduced it like sort of as a question. And they listed, you know, you want to be able to see like at a glance what before you install an app, what it's going to do, what kinds of things it's going to request. And they said, where have we seen this before? And I thought to myself, hmm, the Google Play Store? <laughs> but of course... Google does this, yeah. Yeah, but... It's it's not as clear on the Google Play Store, but they do this. Yeah, so what... And of course, that's when they said, oh yeah, nutrition labels. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, well, I guess it's And in fact, like when that. you install apps on an Android device, you see this as well. Um, right. Before you download them. I have an Android phone that I take out every now and then to just to see what the other side is doing. Right. And I've got some Android tablets. I, I, Apple's making it a little more explicit, and they're putting it in three categories. Data used to track you, which is financial information, location, and contact information. Data linked to you, so personal location, your purchases, um, browsing history, et cetera. And data not linked to you, such as usage data and diagnostics, which is Actually, data, you don't have to worry about too much as long as it's not linked to a profile. Now, what I don't understand is they say that developers will self-report this information. Uh, I wonder if that means that they don't necessarily have to be honest or if they're caught out being dishonest, if Apple will you know, slap them down for it. Well, and they the way they introduced this, they said this was kind of an extension of the whole privacy policy thing. A couple of years ago, they started requiring developers to include a privacy policy that was a requirement in order to get your apps on the App Store. And so this is sort of an extension of that in, in Apple's view. And they're making it so that you don't have to sit and read through this ridiculously long and complicated privacy policy. Now you can tell at a glance by looking at 
some very simple icons what kind of information this app is going to collect. Um, but yes, because it's still reported by the developer, uh, you know, there's it kind of remains to be seen like how closely Apple is going to be analyzing what they're putting, you know, and claiming that they're doing with each app. Okay. So there's a couple of neat features in iOS. There's a lot of stuff here and we'll link to an article I wrote on the Mac security blog. Um, but there's two things that stand out in iOS. One that you really liked is that finally there's a little, there's a little dot in the status bar. If the microphone is active or if the camera is active, the microphone's active, there's an orange dot. The camera's active. There's a green dot, just like I see on my iMac right now. And we were talking the other day, you were saying, why is it taking them so long to do this? It's kind of shocking in a way because this is something that third-party developers uh, actually pointed out years ago. And they said, hey, um, it's really nice that we can do this on a Mac and, and have a little light that's built into the hardware right next to the camera so we know when somebody's at least recording video. There's still not something like that on the Mac uh, for audio. Um, right. but, but now we finally have something like this on the iPhone, which never had any kind of indicator light next to the camera. So this is great. I am super, super happy to see this is finally coming to iOS so that you'll be able to tell when something is recording, whether it's microphone or uh, whether it's using your camera. Yeah. And so the other thing that I think is very cool is that you have uh, two options for location information. If an app wants to know where you are, you can choose your precise location or, in the future, your approximate location. And Apple did something very clever here. They don't, as approximate location, they don't just take a radius from where you are and extend it because you'd still be able to find more or less where someone is. So what they've done is they've divided the entire planet into regions that are roughly 10 square miles in size. Each one has its own names and boundaries, and the area of the region is not based on a radius from a user. It's fixed. So you could be in a region just by the border. And the border could be across the street. But this is the kind of location information that you need not to record where you take a photo, but for instance, when you want a weather report or when you want to find, I don't know, find a gas station near me. Maybe you don't want to say exactly where the near me is and you want something that's just in the area. Yeah, this is a, a good move in the right direction, I think, because um, not every app necessarily needs to know your precise location. And so you may not really want to give that information away. Um, so this is a nice thing uh, to sort of have a step in between if if you're using an app that doesn't really need your exact location. And there's one more thing. Um, we mentioned this not long ago on the podcast, and we've got an article on the Mac Security blog. You will finally be able to change the default email app and web browser on iOS. People have been clamoring for this for years. This is something that I think is probably at least partially in response to criticisms. One of the criticisms is that, you know, it's Apple makes it seem like they don't really care about giving users any choice over these sort of things. Because whereas on really any other platform besides iOS, you can set a default browser, you can set a default email app, but they've never allowed you to do that on iOS. You can finally get other browsers for the past several years that Apple has allowed third-party browsers in the iOS app store. And of course, email clients as well, but they don't let you switch to that by default. So if you tap on a mail to link in in a web page, it's going to launch in Apple's mail app on iOS. Now you can finally switch to something else with, with iOS 14. 
One reason they might have done this is because of the growing antitrust investigations, particularly in Europe. And this is saying, okay, we're we're backing up. We're 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 giving more choice. We're allowing people to do more. I think it's a good thing to do. It's taken too long. Okay, that's enough for now. We've got two articles on the Intigomax security blog, um, one about the new operating systems and one more specifically about security and privacy. Um, we won't really be talking a lot about this uh, in the coming months because, well, I've got a developer account, but I'm under NDA, so I can't really say anything about it. Um, it what's interesting is so many people are writing about this on the web uh, and Apple doesn't do anything, but I prefer to be a little bit safe. By the way, um, I think it is worth noting that for iOS 14, it's compatible with the same iPhones as iOS 13. That's a very good thing. I'm always happy yes. when Apple does that. Um, same iPhones and iPads and even iPod Touch. That's right. Yeah, well, that's not terribly surprising because <laughs> the current version of iOS only runs on the most recent generation of iPod Touch. Exactly, because it's the only one that's 64 bits. Right. Um, but uh, if you are on the Mac and you want to upgrade from you know Catalina to Big Sur, uh, not every Mac can run it. So there were some 2012 models of Mac that could run Catalina. Now you, it requires uh, some tw 2013 or in some cases later models uh, in order to run Big Sur. So um, that is something worth noting. Yep. Okay. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long to get every weekly episode. Be sure to subscribe at Apple podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can leave a rating, a like, or a review links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com